Whiskey Britton is an Irish surfer, author, scientist and activist. A native of Rasnaula in County Donegal, she was named after well-known wave off the West Coast, so maybe her fate was sealed from the start. In July, Eastgy will be appearing at the West Cork Literary Festival to talk about her latest book, Ebb and Flow. So it is my total pleasure to meet this wave goddess over Zoom and chat about the book and so much more, I hope. So welcome, Eastgy. Wow, what an intro, Siobhan. Thank you for my day. <laughs> All accurate, I'm sure. Uh, so first off, Eastgy, bring me back to growing up on the west coast of Ireland and tell me about your parents. I think they were both surfers, were they? Yeah, yeah. I was born into you know, the surfing way of life. Um, but my parents were involved in pioneering surfing in Ireland. And my dad is one of five brothers. And he started surfing from the age of 12. So they were some of the first surfers, I guess, in the 60s in Ireland. Um, and we grew up in Rasnada, myself and my sister. Uh, so it's a really great beach in Donegal for learning to surf. It's very safe and playful. So the ocean was always our playground from the from the early days. Yeah. Do you, can you remember your first interaction with the sea there in Rasnaula? It's it's funny, I often get asked that and I actually can't remember a time before the ocean. So I actually don't have an early memory. It just is this, that's just where I've always been and where I've always felt most at home, which is interesting. I think one of my very earliest memories are probably actually when I was learning to surf with my dad. And and it's why I think surfing is so good, especially or getting in the sea and learning how to how to be in an environment like that as a young person, as a kid. So I was probably, you know, about three or four years old. <laughs> I still first did in the surfboard age four. But this is my first wipeout experience of getting tossed off the wave. And and really, even if you get help getting pushed into a wave, I think it's really important to develop that sense of autonomy and independence so young because you're really on your own then with this wave riding it. Uh, and, you know, sometimes then you just don't have control of the consequences. So I got tossed off, I caught underneath the surfboard and then eventually came up kind of coughing and spluttering but I remember then looking to my dad and he was just straight away kind of like whooping and cheering and uh, smiling and laughing so making kind of I suppose that really important lesson of um, finding the joy even in getting the knocks or getting tossed around and the importance of making it a really positive experience especially those early encounters with water so I, I didn't associate it then with with fear I was like, oh, this is just all part of the play. <laughs> the wipeout as much as riding the wave. So such an important lesson now looking back. Yeah, totally. And uh, so you were actually the first woman to ride that famous wave off the cliffs of Moher. I don't know if I ever pronounced it right. Alna Sharak, is it? And um, tell me about that and how you how you came to do that and how, what it felt like. And were you, were you fearful at all? Surely then. Oh, yes, always. Um, I mean, it may look from the outside, oh, once you've ridden a big wave, you've conquered your fears, but it's always there. I think it's part of the thrill. If you didn't feel um, something, and you're probably in trouble. Um, but for me, yeah, that was, it's amazing how a wave, a particular place can act as such a a game changer in one's life. And so my relationship with this wave, Isle the Shark or Aileen's, uh, changed everything for me in terms of my relationship with surfing in the sea. And I first surfed it in 2007 um, there was a small kind of crew of surfers both Irish and international filming a documentary called Wave Riders which ended up going on to win lots of awards uh, and I it had only just they'd only just started to surf it um, that year and I, part of the issue up until then had been access like how do you access a wave at the bottom of the cliffs of Moher? <laughs> 
And so with the advent of jet skis and what was called, you know, what's called toe surfing, that kind of opened up the opportunity. And I just wanted to go to watch. That was my intention is just to see uh, this wave break. Um, And then it ended up, I ended up with a friend of mine kind of just encouraging me to like jump on the end of the tow rope, which I had never done this before in my life. And there's specialized equipment. You wear the, you know, an impact vest or straps on the surfboard. The board's extra heavy to deal with the speed. Um, so yeah, in a way it was probably really good to go in there without too many expectations and a beginner's mindset. Cause I hadn't had time to think about it. Um, and my friend Dylan stopped uh, towed me into a wave that day and I just remembered the first the first wave he was pulling me into uh, there was so much going on I just I never let go of the tow rope I was like had this death grip on it um, and then it, we circled back around the lineup and then you'd go out to meet the next wave and you're so the whole idea is so you gain enough speed to be able to take off on it um, and then that moment I did let go on that first ever wave I towed into the biggest up until that point the biggest wave of my life it was such a thrill like this the experience will be like imprinted in my body and memory forever um and then it was after after riding the wave or all the kind of emotion and adrenaline um hit me and then I was just like kind of giddy giddy uh for days <laughs> uh, so that set me on course then to want to pursue I suppose find seek out that feeling again and pursue big wave surfing and like have you ever felt your life was in danger in any of these places you've gone to all over the world you've surfed yeah, I probably I've been probably in more dangerous situations on land than in water. Again, it's that feeling of those of us I know who are who are drawn to it will feel a sense of for me belonging. Uh, this feeling of being able to show up just as I am, uh, however I'm feeling, um, which always feels welcoming. But yes, definitely have been in some situations that are are very intense at that extreme level with big wave surfing. But there's so much preparation that goes into those moments. Um, um, in the build up or lead up to catching a wave that people don't see. So it's uh, actually feels a lot of the time maybe safer than some of those other days. Most of my accidents in surfing, and I've been lucky, they've been few and far between, happen on the smaller days when you kind of let your guard down or your ego gets gets the run of you, you know, um, and then the ocean really then sort of reminds you <laughs> of your own insignificance. And it can be, you know, your humility and the importance of that but definitely with big wave surfing it's very I suppose a very psychological pursuit too and so I did a lot of training around that um that has now greatly benefit benefited all aspects of my life and that would be cultivating what's known as the blue mind so uh tapping into that state of inner state of calm especially in response to a challenge or a stressful situation so being able to override the stress response when a wave is about to break on you or you're going to wipe out in really heavy surf is crucial um really for your survival um to keep your heart rate low and to remain relaxed um so that you can hold your breath for longer underwater <laughs> And now I feel I'm applying that to so many aspects of my life. Like in I, when I gave birth last year and as a new mom, and I've been trying to call on those resources <laughs> as much as possible <clears throat> from big wave surfing, funnily enough. And so since you, I suppose, re- semi-retired, I suppose, were from competitive surfing, you, you've done a, an awful lot of fantastic work with women in particular. And um. I was reading in, I think it was your your first book, Saltwater. I have your three 
three books here I don't know if there's even more <laughs> um, I'm a big fan obviously oh gorgeous <laughs> look at them all <laughs> but uh, salt water in the blood I think you speak a lot about that and and some of these women who'd never even seen the sea and you bring them and you teach them how to surf and um, it's an absolutely fantastic initiative that you started so can you talk just a small little bit about that to us and the, wor the work you're doing there abroad yeah, I suppose traveling with something like that, you know, having that sea connection, the ability to to swim and surf from so early on, it just felt natural to me that this is the normal way of being in the world. And then traveling and realizing actually there are so many of us who don't have access to that, uh, and especially women and girls and other marginalized groups. But I was kind of shocked to just realize how great the gap, the gender gap is and the ability to swim worldwide. Women are, is still much lower compared to men in every country in the world. World, but 85% of women in low income countries aren't able to swim. And so for me, this really contributes to establishing the ocean and water is dangerous and risky and unsafe uh, or not a place for women and girls. And it sets that narrative up culturally, uh, which um, I feel now I'm I'm definitely on a mission to create that cultural shift. And part of that then was, yeah, having these experiences in really unexpected places just through meeting other like-minded women uh, and girls really passionate about wanting to uh, pursue their sport or to overcome these challenges to access water and learn how to swim and surf in places like the Middle East and Iran. Um, and then more recently, um, there's been, I've been, Kind of more on the sidelines, but observing a wonderful project in Sri Lanka called Sea Sisters. But for me, it really began back in, I suppose, as far back as a decade ago in 2013 in Iran with young young women and girls there, looking at ways of how do you how do you turn the ocean, which is considered this unsafe space and a space where women and girls don't belong, into a welcoming, empowering, and and healing space. And so it was wonderful to develop a program called Be Like Water with Shireen Garami, she's Iran's first female triathlete. Um, she was a great kind of guide and mentor to me because I'm in, in this world that's also very different culturally speaking. But then once, once we kind of get together, especially a group of women and start sharing our experiences of water and learning from each other and really creating that really enabling positive space and getting our bodies immersed in water, everything changed in terms of that sense of connection um, through this shared experience, really developing an understanding um, of each other, and so creating that lovely social connection and bond, even across cultures, and then really discovering this our own kind of con confidence that comes from then being in the ocean and starting to feel comfortable in it um, was really incredible. And fast forward ten years, one of the first women I taught to surf there. Uh, Starman 2015 she's also an incredible snowboarder but she's now at the world surfing games in El Salvador representing Iran <laughs> so you just never know the ripple effect uh, when you share something like that share a passion for for water and the ocean with others it's, it's the best absolutely a fantastic story and I don't think you get half enough credit in this country for for what you're doing in that area so hopefully I think I think the next few years are going to be the year the years of the ocean I feel in my, myself oh, and I hope so mm. <laughs> yes so what, that brings me nicely to my next question which i i think you kind of answered it in in some i've i've watched your ted talk and you're talking nuig and have you any doubt that we were once creatures of the sea and yet some people are more drawn to it than others so like how do you explain that if we did originally come there from there why do some people 
taste to see. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I think like water and all its forms, it, there's a lot of complexity to our relationship with it as humans. Uh, there is definitely that innate affinity and connection and draw it has because we depend on it for our survival. But equally, as much as it's healing and transformative, I really recognize it's a place uh, that holds a lot of danger and especially the ocean, the real kind of unknown unpredictability and unknowability of it sometimes too can can also sometimes feel threatening uh, and it's also a place of loss uh, I really use it as a metaphor for connection but we're seeing in the world too how it can act as a, a very real barrier uh, for people especially when they're trying to flee or find opportunities elsewhere and um, so there's I think I guess important to acknowledge all of that it very much depends on our context and our life history um, and even the stage of our life cycle I feel my relationship with water changes as well when I look back at my own life but it's really also important to I think part of the issue is this separation we feel not only from nature but also even then our own bodies so bringing it back to connecting that's what the book ebb and flow is really looking at of how to reconnect and um, in a more uh, intentional and intimate way with water but water in all its forms and water in our bodies so really recognizing how we are all bodies of water uh, and then through that recognizing how we're actually connected to all these other bodies <laughs> both human and non-human that water is continually cycling through uh, and then through all time so I think it, there's yeah there's so much um, wisdom in that uh, and but it does come with trying to cultivate this kind of greater sense of awareness and connection uh, with water um, because it is complex. <laughs> well, you're, you're also a great ambassador uh, for women being in touch with their menstrual cycle. And I know that. And um, so you, th what you've said there kind of hinges on that a small bit, I think. So like, how do you connect the sea to, um, you know, the elements and like the moon. And we, we, we also say that the moon influences our menstrual cycle. So how have you brought all those elements together in, in your, um, I think you call it menstrual therapy, is it? Or your menstrual mentor? Yeah, yeah, I suppose it's just about having that kind of uh, cyclical awareness rather than a more linear notion of what it means to uh, progress in the world or be successful or, or so on. It tends to be a notion that we need to accumulate more, do more in order to grow. But actually, if we look to nature and those natural cycles inherently within them is both the ebb and the flow. So it's the, the name of the book, I try to weave in. <laughs> This kind of cycle awareness into all everything I do and all my writing, of course. Um, but it's very much about, and then I feel like as women, of course, for uh, women and people with periods, it's very much inbuilt into us this our own, you know, innate sort of cyclical rhythm. But we're often, more often than not, taught how to suppress it or oppress it or, um, or or control it. And actually, it's a really important kind of message from the body that's very attuned to nature about the importance of the ebb as much as the flow. So that state of rest and recovery, um, of reflection, of going inward, um, and uh, yeah, rather than the constant state of doing. And there's so much to be learned. Then when we look to those cycles in nature, they're everywhere. <laughs> uh, and how the you know the decomposition and the decay of life is as important for its growth 
Um, you can't have actually have one without the other. And then I, I unpack that further in Ebb and Flow by even looking at emotions around grief and loss uh, and what they they mean for us and, and why is it, you know, in our modern society, we're really uncomfortable even with um, acknowledging them. And I think you also made the point in the book about uh, menstruation that I suppose there's I hope I'm taking you up rightly on this now that there has been a pressure, I suppose, especially in women athletes to almost ignore that and just to plow on through at that time of the month, even though you may be in pain or you may be lacking in energy. But actually, you're saying we should acknowledge that and work with it and work around that and not expect ourselves to be 100 percent four weeks of the month. Yeah, and 100 percent of what, I suppose, 100 percent of needing to be that, you know, always on you know smiling shining um image of uh some ideal that's held of of who we are which i i think is kind of a falsehood anyways yeah my like i, I think a lot has changed so my experience definitely as a competitive athlete in surfing was very much to yeah ignore it control it you know uh manage it by by taking the pill um and but it was really a hindrance like it was this incon like at, at best an inconvenience, but it was always something that was like a limiting factor. And then later, much later in my life, sort of my late twenties, early thirties, I began to like think, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> This is my, you know, in terms of my body literacy, I thought I, I thought I was well up on that as a surfer and an athlete, but I actually realized, no, actually, I've been suppressing this whole part of myself, and there's just huge wisdom in it of uh, tapping into what I see is these unique powers of each phase of the cycle as I move through it, say every every month, um, and when I began to become it's just a lovely way to create a body awareness by actually paying attention uh throughout our menstrual cycle to how our energies ebb and flow this is sort of like the peak of our energy and recognizing when and where that happens so being able to kind of make the most of that but then also realizing where these other powers come into play like where I become really good in terms of my creative thinking or get these brilliant new insights or inspiration and then other times where I just feel the need to withdraw um, um, and go inward and it's a really important time for that sort of reflection reflection and processing so there's all those yeah and then physically then my body is kind of wants to move then in different ways or my energy wants to express itself differently so I have some surf sessions you know say around ovulation where I'm just go 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 and chasing after waves and wanting to feel that constant buzz and then other times maybe closer around around menstruation it isn't that I I can't surf or don't want to surf but it just it feels different and it's much more than about like allowing the waves to come to me um, and I often surf maybe my best because I'm much more in my body if I've allowed myself to rest I suppose is the big one that we really struggle with and and so coming back to to surfing and swimming at home like, do you think that we're doing enough in this country to um, promote what we have on our doorstep, even though at the same time, I suppose we also have to be mindful that we're not overusing it in the in an age of plastic pollution and, you know, um, factory sized wind farms offshore and all the rest. But I mean, I often feel myself that we have this amazing resource on our doorstep. We're a small, relatively small island. We were not really screaming about it enough. What we have out there are we yeah it's interesting I mean there, you could say definitely I've seen a big shift here in even in Rasnala and I'm sure in every beach around the country 
obviously post pandemic with it having such a pull on people and probably one of the best <laughs> un unforeseen outcomes perhaps is people going to the sea and discovering I think it's because that's an example of how we're to me of how we have that innate intuitive connection as humans with water when we just knew at a time of crisis and trauma to go to the water because it was going to make us feel better um, and then seeing how so many people have kept that up so at, at any moment on the beach here in Rosal you'll see like ones and twos or little pod, pods of people uh, religiously ritualistically go to the water um, before it would have just been it would be incredibly rare you'd see maybe one or two <laughs> um, going to do that but um, yeah I think for like I what I'm interested in now is how with that increasing connection with water do you also I suppose raise the consciousness of the interdependency of needing healthy water environments and blue spaces for our own health and that the state of the water and its quality really mirrors our own health individually and as a as as a community and collectively um, because now we're having to navigate accessing these experiences that we know make us feel so good and are really good for our health in in polluted environments uh, and I I've experienced that um swimming and surfing as well as so many others have and it's a huge issue a lot of bathing sites even beaches being closed uh which is totally unacceptable in the 21st century in a place like Ireland because of raw sewage and um and I but I do think as a, as swimming swimming and surfing kind of communities and people who are centered around the water there's really great opportunity there for collective action and I think that's why you see the strength of organizations like um you know surfers against sewage and Surfrider foundation and so there's a lot of these grassroots organizations then that campaign to protect uh what we love and uh, and just finally, I know that you're a big um, swimmer yourself. You really come back to swimming in, in the last few years as opposed to surfing or a bit of both. But where's your sweet, your sweet spot for where you go for just a gentle swim that just brings you back in touch with everything? Uh, yeah, lovely. And I've kind of come back to see swimming later in life. Because I did it competitively when I was younger, and that kind of uh, in in swimming pools might <laughs> kill the joy for me for a while, which is not an uncommon uh, experience, I think. But now it's just to feel that immersion, and I'm more of a dipper and a bather, and uh, just like to go out and and feel how the water feels in my body. Um, but I love to do that. Just does it. It's funny, I seek out totally different spaces for swimming than I do surfing. I prefer it where it's calmer and tucked away and sheltered, <laughs> and there's a bit of depth. So I'm definitely a high tide sea swimmer and there's yeah there's a lovely little cove in the cliff uh, along the cliffs here in Rasnala that's actually one of my favorite places um, but I love when I travel and even with my book and I when I'm touring with it I always find somewhere that I can get immersed <laughs> and hopefully bring others along with me which is what we'll be doing in, in at the West Court Literary literary fest as well on the 9th of July um there's a obviously a session with me with about the book but then we'll all get in the sea for a swim too brilliant that's excellent and um I'm really looking forward to meeting you there and it's in the lovely environs of Bantry House so overlooking the sea even as you're speaking so I think that's a perfect perfect venue for you so Iski thank you so much for joining us on from A to C and um really looking forward to seeing you in Bantry and I highly recommend Ebb and Flow which is available now so thank you so much thank you thanks for listening to the latest episode in the Southern Stars from A to C podcast series 
This episode was produced and presented by Southern Star Editor Siobhan Cronin and edited by me, Dylan Mangan. This was the third episode in the series, so if you enjoyed it, please head over to southernstar.ie forward slash podcasts where you can swim through previous episodes with Total Immersion swim coach Melissa Duncan and journalist and author Cathy Donaghy. Be sure to pick up a copy of this Thursday's Southern Star in shops across West Cork or online via subscribe.southernstar.ie and thanks for listening.